Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm very excited to introduce Sean Fitzgerald, Senior National Writer for The Athletic. Thanks so much, Sean, for taking the time and coming on. Thanks for having me. I first want to ask you, Sean, a little bit about your career. Was was there a moment or or when did you first think that you want to pursue, that you might want to pursue a career in sports journalism? I'm not qualified to do anything else. I'm not very good at math. Uh, science uh, just terrified me. Um, I have no other qualifications. I'm not handy. I can't hammer a nail in straight to save my life. Um, I don't do well in the heat. Uh, it just really winnowed down the number of things that I could possibly do. Um, it was either this or like, you know, nobody answered my audition tapes that I sent in for the Blue Man Group. So it was down <laughs> to those two, uh, Blue Man Group and sports writing. And this is the one I ended up at. Awesome. That's great to hear. And and tell us a little bit about your journey, maybe how you started and, and to maybe where you are now at The Athletic. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I, I, I went to a school that was then known as Ryerson University, mm-hmm. uh, now Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, I was fortunate enough to you know work at the campus paper, the eye opener, um, met my future wife at the eye opener. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, a, a series of internships, the Hockey News, uh, the Kingston League Standard, the, the Toronto Star. Um, and then one uh, I got in the, uh, at the National Post. Um, and I ended up working in the sports department there for 15 years. Um, moved to the Canadian press for a bit, moved to the Toronto star and in 2016, uh, made a jump, um, to the athletic, which was, uh, then operating in Chicago and had just recently opened in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And, and with that, for, for your writing itself, like, what would you say your process is? Like, obviously, um, we'll talk about a little bit about the book, but, just for like a daily or your normal writing for the athletic, what is your process like if, uh, if you could give us a little bit of an inside look? Yeah. I mean, the process for my writing is agony, uh, a lot of pain, um, some tears. Uh, every time you open up a new sheet, uh, that, that blank screen and the cursor is just blinking at you, staring and mocking you. Um, that's my process. Um, I mean, over the years, has it changed a lot? I don't know that it has. Um, I mean, to get super wonky about it, um, you know, I sat next to Bruce Arthur for years and years at yeah. National Post and his process and my process are very different in that he doesn't seem to have a process. It just <laughs> congeals into like often very, 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 very good work. But what he will do is, and I have tried to adopt some of it, is that um, when he's in the reporting or when he's, you know, say transcribing um or when he's sitting there in an idle moment if a passage or a point um or a structure comes to him he'll mm. sketch it out so mm. if he comes up with a line or a piece or a transition or even a section of text um, that he knows is going to make it into the story he'll type it into the screen and then come back to it later whereas for me i always and still do i have to have my top okay. i have to have my first paragraph two paragraphs three paragraphs before I can do the rest. I mean, mm-hmm. more or less, that's still the same. That's been the same since I started in 1996 or whenever uh, to today. I, I still can't, I don't have the mental capacity to sort of build, um, you know, in a nonlinear fashion. I have to go top to bottom. Um, Bruce, Bruce can write sections and chunks. 
and he has the sort of intellectual capacity to be able to knit it all together. Um, Chris Jones, who used to work at National Post and went on to Esquire, I got to sit next to him for a while too. He would sometimes write the kicker. Huh. He would he would write the exit for a story, huh. right? So the last couple of paragraphs that you'd read, and he would write that first, especially mm. for long features. I mean, news breaking, whatever. That's that's a different thing. But where he had a chance to really sit down with a piece, he would write the end first because that's that's how the reader leaves the piece. Um, so that feeling, that idea, that conclusion, he would write that first and sort of work his way to the ending from there. Wow. And that's 3D chess. I could never work my that's... way that way. That's crazy. That I, I can't. Yeah, no, I'm. I'm the same with you. I can't even imagine nope. that. And, and and with and with that, you you write a lot of features, and you alluded to that a little bit. What do you think makes a good feature story? And 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 yeah, what makes a good feature story in your mind? I mean, there's a bunch of different kinds, right? There's um, you know process, how things are done, kind of feature stories. Um, in the Globe and Mail, uh, you know, uh, Greg MacArthur, Robin Doolittle. Um, the incredible staff that's over at the Globe, um, you know, they they can have a bunch of different kinds of features. So one was, I want to say, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna get the name of the company right, so I won't say it. But um, basically, it was a, a series of buildings downtown, and you know, uh, cost overruns, and just really, you know, you really have to get into know, um, you know, how things went crooked, how things went sideways. There's a lot of reporting. Um, so it's not a lot of literary flourishes. I think MacArthur was on one of the bylines there. Um, just incredible. But it's like how it's done, the nitty gritty, not a lot of, you know, florid pray, uh, prose. Um, that can be fantastic too. Um, but then one where it's, um, you know, a scene or, you know, you're trying to evoke emotion um, to really convey what you're seeing in front of you. Um, those can be super powerful too. Like, there's that's the thing with features it can be it can be all kinds it can depend on the story um and every single one of them can be powerful in their own way and what are the stories that you most enjoy writing about oof again i mentioned the pain thing um <laughs> i i'm sometimes even more terrified um when i do trip over uh, my way to finding a decent story because the pressure is to stick the landing Right. Mm. Like there's one thing to be able to report a story and find a story, uncover a story or see a story in front of you. Um, and it's another one to sort of be able to convey everything that you're feeling, everything that your senses, your five senses sometimes, um, and convey that to readers. So I've been really fortunate um, to go to some really interesting events over the years. And yeah, that is that is a huge challenge that when you're at an event, um to convey what you're seeing feeling hearing um to a reader who might not pick it up for 24 hours yeah. even with the web right like we you know it's instantaneous but that doesn't mean all your readers are going to find it right away maybe they only open up the app once every day so they might not catch it right away so um how do you convey what your senses are telling you to somebody who might not pick it up mm -hmm. and that's that gives me the night terrors sometimes <laughs> and, and I don't think I can do it. Yeah. And how do you push through? Lots of coffee. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know what? Every day it sounds stupid and I'm not being sarcastic here. 
but every day it's the same challenge mm. every single day, every single story. Um, it's because no two stories are the same. No two settings are the same. That's the beauty of kind of being in sports or anywhere really like, yeah. um, you know, no two city council meetings are the same. Yeah. Um, no two court cases are the same, but, um, you know, being, being a journalist, being a print journalist or, you know, television, radio, they all have their storytelling techniques and challenges and nuances. Um, but the beauty of this job of this field um, is that no two days are the same. Mm -hmm. So every time I open up a screen, um, it's a it's a brand new feeling of terror that washes over me. And and with that, um, I don't know if it was a terror for you to to write a book compared to a story, but yeah, he, you're nodding for for the audio listeners. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm I'm also shivering. Uh, yeah, that was <laughs> that's a whole new thing, and honestly, that's really interesting in the context of like what you're asking. Um, like, I'm not a smart person, right? I I, I, you know, I worked in a steel mill through high school to help pay my way through university. Um, like I, I do not come from a background where, um, you know, I had a lot of exposure uh, to the arts when I was a kid. Um, like I, I don't, I don't have the intellectual capacity um, to be able to see a story. Like, you know, um, uh, you know, Two two H uh, two series just came to an end, right? Apple Apple just ended Ted Lasso, maybe, yeah. uh, and Barry just ended on HBO. And both of those writing crews have been quoted saying that you know they they basically built their story arcs in the beginning. Yeah, right. So all of these things, like they, you know, four seasons of Barry, three seasons of Ted Lasso, like that was basically done. I don't have that ability to do it, right? Like mm -hmm. I I could never conceive something like that um which is you know why daily journalism kind of works for me because i can go day to day to day so when you you know when you come up with a book i'd always read people saying oh you know they lost themselves in a book or they felt lost and i never quite understood it again like you know i grew up at the mill uh reading the papers every day day to day sort of task to task to task was sort of how i how I grew into whatever it is I do, right? The idea of big picture and things like that, that doesn't come naturally to me. Um, so when the book came, um, all of a sudden, you have all the reporting, all the things that you'll pick up through journalism, right? The reporting, what is the story? But then when you came down to writing it, and this thing was gonna be 100,000 words, there is no structure. There's no format laid out for you. Um, there's no guideposts in a, in a daily newspaper, you know, when you're doing a 600 word story, even if it's not super clear to you, you can generally find the lead, your top, you know, the context and maybe, you know, with all respect to Chris Jones, sometimes you can just get, get a kicker and 600 words, you're filed by deadline. That's it. With this thing, I I honestly, I think I rewrote the preface like five times Wow! because you start it and you're like, where am I going with this? The idea of plotting, um, of charting was totally foreign to me. I'd never really thought about it before because I never really had to. So with something this big, yeah, like after trying in a couple of false starts, um, I did try and 
teach myself how to plot, um, how to chart things, how to build, how to build uh, pathways and bridges and that sort of thing. And, you know, going back, it was a three-year process. I goofed a lot and you know, I'm happy with what came out, but if I was to do it again, for sure, there'd be different changes. Like, you know, for, for how visual a learner I am, remember those, those, those big three panel uh, cardboard displays you do for your high school science yep. class, yep. maybe even middle school science class, yeah, right? Yeah. Like I am writing a story about or a project about photosynthesis, photosynthesis. And here's my three panels. I had one of those here on my dining room table <laughs> and wow. I had a series of cue cards that were about the size of my iPhone and I'd write, yeah, you know, cause I'd wow. have all the information and I'd put it up on the board and, you know, I'd stand back and I'd look at it and like, no, this belongs up here. This belongs here. Um, and that was the only way I could come up with a, a structure or a flow that I had to see it. Okay. The story goes from here, here, then up here, then, and even then I still didn't quite get it. And when it came to the writing of it, it's that blank page again. It's that terror of, I don't know where I'm going. Uh, I'm in charge of this, you know, navigating this road and, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Um, it was a lot of trial and error. Like that was, that was unlike any experience I've ever had. And I guess I started this about 20 years into the business. Um, and I'd never, I'd never had an experience like that before. And with that, how did you manage to, to kind of uh, guide the plane into the terminal and, and <laughs> bring, bring the, uh, the book all together and, and make it make sense and everything? I had, on the book, as I've been very lucky in newspapers as well, to have just a fantastic editor, uh, Jordan Ginsburg, um, who used to work at National Post, uh, you know, helped launch Hazlitt, um, works at McClellan Stewart, which is part of Penguin Random House, and is a genius on top of being one of the most patient people I've ever come across in my life. Because as you might tell, I can be kind of neurotic as well. So uh, it could be every day, whether it be reporting, or in the writing, I'd shoot that poor man texts, emails, voicemails saying, I don't know what I'm doing. This doesn't work. Uh, help, help, SOS. And he'd always send me a note back or have a call or have a meeting, a breakfast, a coffee, lunch. Uh, you know, he bought me a bunch of beers one day in a particularly challenging period. Um, he was fantastic. He was a counselor. He was an editor. He was a friend. Um, and without without Jordan, yeah, no. Whatever it was, I mean, whatever value judgment you want to make on the book, um, if you didn't like it, it would have been worse. Uh, if you did like it, it was because of what his presence was. And and with that, to to pivot slightly, because the book is about the Peterborough Peets, and what's it been like for you to see them make the Memorial Cup? Like this year, I have, sadly for me, they beat my Ottawa 67s on the way there. But uh, what was that like for you? It would have been nice if they did it in 2017, 2018. Um, when we, uh, Jordan, again, over beers, not that beers should be a recurring theme, I guess. But um, when when he hatched the idea of doing something like this, um, you know, the Peach just happened to be building up towards a run. Um, they had an older team. Um, they'd gone out and they'd acquired talent and they started that season, the season we were following them, um, ranked top 10 in the CHL for the first time in quite some time. And then at some point around Remembrance Day, they just forgot how to play hockey, which isn't very good for a hockey team. 
and they miss the playoffs, which is a very difficult thing to do in the OHL sometimes. Um, so, yeah, watching them now, I mean, the turnover is so high. I mean, all the players are long gone. Um, you know, some of them are now through university. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, some of the, the front office staff, um, two-thirds of the coaching staff, it's the same. So just knowing the road that they've all gone through, it's been it's been fun to watch. I'm happy for them. Mm-hmm. And, and in your book, you, you kind of talk about the, there being this this crisis in hockey and in Canada, and, and maybe tell us what the crisis is in your mind for hockey, and and has anything changed in your mind since writing that book in 2019? It's gotten worse. Um, yeah, I mean the crisis in hockey. It's pretty well documented about the cost, priced itself out. Um, but more than that, I think what what hockey people were initially maybe slow to grasp onto is that cost isn't the only issue. It might not even be the primary issue anymore because all of sports is expensive, which is another issue, but we can get yeah. into that later. <laughs> At U Sports, um, it's just not attractive. It's not inclusive. It's not accessible. Um, you walk into any rink here in Toronto um, and it doesn't feel like you're in Toronto anymore. Like it's not mm-hmm. representative. There are so many communities that are not adequately represented inside the rink. So there's that aspect of it. Um, you know, the culture aspect of hockey, um, you know, has been pretty well explained. I think a lot through the work that Rick Westhead's yeah. been doing over the last several years. Uh, Rick Westhead, the the senior correspondent at TSN, both um, interpersonally, um, you know, as he's explored through um, the Kyle Beach. Mm-hmm. um incidents with uh, chicago um and also you know um administratively with some of the work that he's been doing around the greater toronto hockey league and how these franchises can sort of be bought and sold um which isn't really great for minor sports either mm-hmm. so yeah hockey in canada is at an existential crossroads and it was in 2016 when we started the project it might have made its path. It might have made its turn since then. And I'm not sure, you know, since it's left those crossroads that it made the right path. Mm-hmm. Is there anything... Hockey's in, hockey's in trouble. Yeah. Is there anything hockey... Is there any sign of hope? Is there anything... What would you... Like, what do you think needs to change other than maybe everything? Uh, like, w- where do you see... Is there any pathway for it to become more ex- inclusive? Sorry. Um, yeah. And... I mean, all of you sport... Not all of you sport. A lot of you sport is exclusive because it's expensive. Um, it's exclusive because it's inscrutable to get into. If you're not in the system, you know, how do you navigate your way to get into the system? How do you get your child into rep soccer or competitive swimming or diving or anything? Right. So there's that part. It's the inaccessibility on the ground floor. Um, you know, for hockey, it's that times 12. That if you're you know, in the olden days, uh, if you wanted to play hockey, you can go to the local pond. Uh, there's a local team. It's pretty set up easily, right? Today, um, like if you're in Toronto and you're totally new, you can, even if you find your local rink, and there's no good easy way to find even your local rink. Like there's no website I can go into saying, here I am in East Toronto. Where is my local rink? So say I find that local rink, which isn't easy to find to start with. I walk inside, 
Um, there's a bunch of old trophies, a bunch of pictures of old white dudes holding trophies. Um, but there's no like, hey, sign up here if you're new to hockey. Not a single sign. And I can say that confidently about every minor hockey rink in the city. Um, say, hey, sign up's here. Here's how you get in. So then you're left to the internet. And every minor hockey association has its own website. Um, it's really hard to find out where the local rink is, what days they play, how much it costs, what equipment you need, and like base stuff. Like, what's AAA? Is my kid AAA? What's the difference between AAA and AA? Yeah. What's house league? I've never heard of house league before. What's learn to play? All of these things should be made easy for the user at the ground level. They're not. It's impossible. So even if you have interest, which, you know, fewer and fewer people have interest because hockey's inaccessible. Um, even to make that step, hockey makes it hard, right? And that's on top of um, making underrepresented communities feel welcome in the rink, um, inviting them to the rink in the first place. So, yeah, like, for me, if I was in charge, and to be clear, up to this moment, at 12.22 on Thursday, June the 1st, nobody's called me uh, to offer me this position. But if I was running it, um, I would have a national strategy. So all of that money that Hockey Canada has been getting over the years, you know, and spending it on the $5,000 hotel rooms for board members to go to Prague and watch the Ivan Holinka whatever tournament, um, maybe start using some of that money to create a national strategy to help folks at the grassroots, at the local community levels, um, to help uh, resource them, to support them in making meaningful connections with their community. Because I'm not saying that, you know, one fix-all, um, one-size-fits-all national program is going to work in Halifax or Toronto or Prince mm -hmm. Rupert. Um, but empowering the local volunteers to say, hey, look, here's some resources, here's some people you can call, here's some best practices to make inroads uh, with underrepresented communities, to reduce the barriers to entry, whether that be, um, you know, equipment banks, you know, you have gently used equipment that you can pass on to new users, um, best practices for, you know, this worked in the lower mainland um, in BC to help get new folks into the rink. Maybe you could try this here. Um, whether that be, you know, different liaisons or people introducing ball hockey in schools or any of these things, I think, that, you know, redirecting some of the money that maybe, you know, we're using at the national level to win gold medals on super high elite levels um, at the expense of the grassroots. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like the snake eating its own tail. Um, yeah. If you keep ignoring the grassroots of the game, eventually you're not going to have much of the game. Mm. Well, that uh, obviously doesn't sound great for the future of hockey in, in, in nope. Canada and, and, um, elsewhere but i mean uh, there is some i do see some positives but i think i think you're definitely hitting it on the nail there and not to mention concussions and just safety for players themselves um and and fighting and everything um i want to switch as best as i can to how you you write what i what i find really interesting a bit about hockey media and you wrote about sdbn which i really mm -hmm. like those guys out there and and you actually helped me. I had David Amber on the podcast and you wrote a little piece about him. So I got some little information there. But what what's drawn you to write about hockey media and just why do you why are you drawn to those types of stories? Um, 
It's funny that sometimes in the comments uh, under the stories, people are like, is it a slow news day? Uh, why are you writing about this? Um, why are you writing about your friends in the media? I wish I had a lot of friends. Uh, I'm a very lonely person. Um, no, I mean, especially through TV and radio, um, as a sports consumer, you consume it through that lens, right? Like, unless you have season tickets in Toronto for the Leafs, Raptors, Jays, Argos, Toronto FC, and you're in the stands for every single one of those games, like, guess what? Um, you're going to be consuming some of that product through the lens of these sports media companies, whether that be, you know, TSN or Sportsnet, um, who basically carved up all of the pro sports in Canada. So part of your experience in sports is through those folks, right? That, you know, if Hockey Night in Canada gets an audience of whatever it was, like 3.1 million on linear TV for a Leafs Lightning game, like, that means 3.1 million sports fans probably caught parts of Ron McLean or Dave Amber or Elliot Friedman or, um, you know, Kevin Bieksa, Jen Botterill, Anthony Stewart. Um, mm -hmm. That's part of your experience. They are, for lack of a better term, part of the show, right? Sports is entertainment and they're part of that. So my interest in that landscape, um, in those people, um, in, in their approach to storytelling, um, in the business side of it, yeah. I mean, over the years, maybe it's just a function of getting old. Um, I've just sort of developed an interest in it too. Mm -hmm. And before I, I'm going to ask you a little bit about the least, but before I go into that, what advice would you give to young journalists coming up in the industry? You know, a lot of folks, and it's not new. Like when I was graduating from university and I graduated in 2000, people like, oh, the industry is in a tough spot. Um, you know, there were hiring freezes in the eighties, which is well before my time. Um, like the industry's always been full of people saying it's a terrible time to get into the industry. Um, yeah. so it's a terrible time to get into the industry, but, um, I think, you know, if you're, uh, still in university, if you're in college, if you're new in your career and you're in your twenties, um, I'd also argue that maybe in the history of this profession, there's never been a more exciting, dynamic, um, prosperous potential future in the industry. Um, that the industry is changing and, and not just in print, but I mean, in audio, in uh, video, and what it even means to be print, audio, video, like it's congealing, right? Um, like I am working for a company that didn't exist eight years ago. Um, you know, take a look at, you know, Adam Wild, uh, you mentioned SDPN earlier, Adam Wild just quit his job as a morning radio host I saw that. to focus on SDPN, which again is a company that was only incorporated 12 months ago oh um, and that started or has roots in a dude literally yelling into his computer in his parents' basement, you know, 17 years ago about the Maple Leafs. Yeah. Um, it's not easy now. Like, like there's, it's really hard to make a living as a young journalist in this field right now. There's, there's no denying that. Um, it's really difficult to be an older journalist in this field right now because um, the traditional companies are scaling back in dramatic ways, um, really difficult ways. But if you're young and I mean, you're developing skills 
naturally that people like me would have to really study to pick up. Um, I think you're positioned for wherever the future takes this business. People mm -hmm. will always need trustworthy information. Um, and I think, you know, being there as the industry changes and finds this new path forward opens up a lot of potential for folks who are willing to stick through some pretty mm -hmm. choppy waters right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I'll definitely take that to heart as a young person who didn't go to journalism school and, and trying to do this podcast. So I, uh, I definitely will take that to heart and, and thank you for sharing that. And now I want to go to the SDPN. SDPN is a great example, right? Yeah. Like it really does. And again, like it's not going to be immune from market forces uh, moving forward. But what it shows to me is that, you know, content that's good uh, can find an audience and will find an audience. And there is a market for that. Um, like they have, they have a three-story office space in, you know, just on the east side of the Don River, looking onto downtown Toronto. Yeah. They have full-time employees now. They don't have outside investors. They wow. built that up. Now, it was over the course of many, many years. It wasn't overnight success by any means. But, you know, you're starting to see that, I think, in pockets across Canada. Canada is a small media market. Um, so you can look to the U.S. as well. But, you know, in Winnipeg, there's Illegal Curve. There's yeah. Winnipeg Sports Talk. Yeah. Um, you know, you have other companies now like Playmaker Capital, which have, you know, gobbled up uh, a bunch of podcasts and helped launch a bunch of podcasts. You know, uh, Barn Burner out in Calgary is the reinvention of a Sportsnet morning show um, and is now doing apparently from what I can gather from the data available, really good numbers. Sikaris hmm. um, and Price in Vancouver. Yeah. Um, Go Goat Sports has a suite of uh, podcast offerings like these networks are growing um, on the strength of the content and not because they're part of some big legacy brand. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. No, I, I definitely like I'm, I'm a Jets fan too. So I'm always watching Huss and, and, and stuff at sports talk and I love SDPN as well. Um, I applied and, and did uh, get a job there, but uh, I still love them. And then they do such great stuff at SDPN and I, I I really hope they keep going uh, up and up. And um, I, I want to ask a little bit about, obviously, SDPN. They love the Leafs. And uh, I want to ask you about them. I know they've hired Brad Living just a couple hours ago when we're recording this. But I want to first ask a little bit about Kyle Dubas. And what do you, Sean, make of the departure of Kyle Dubas and now that he's in Pittsburgh? And, and how would you assess his tenure as um, GM of the Leafs? I mean... I think by the time you left the expectation I mean this team hasn't won anything since 1967 right um, they haven't been to a Stanley Cup final since 67 let alone winning um, this city just went wild wild celebrating a single playoff win because that hadn't happened in 19 years um I think certainly he had successes. Um, I think ultimately, from my perspective, um, this franchise is judged on, you know, against its history, like good or bad. Um, I'm sure it's really bad if you're in there. But at this point, yeah, you have to judge this team against its history and expectations. And 
you can go back through, you know, go through the archives and it's always been on the precipice before and something's always held it back. So in terms of judging Kyle Dubas, I think he did some inventive things. I think, you know, by what I've read from the people who know, um, he did really positive things about changing the office culture, uh, about making sure people were entitled, uh, empowered, excuse me, not entitled, empowered, um, and certainly modernized the front office. Um, ultimately, they didn't win. Um, if Jim Trilliving wins, then he'll grade out higher. If Jim Trilliving loses, then we Brad. can talk about the grade yeah. You're saying Jim yeah, Trilliving, that's yeah, his dad, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I was just no. reading about. I was just reading about his dad. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's okay. Um, yeah, and and with with Brad Trilliving, what do you think of him as the new GM? Obviously, he did pretty well in in Calgary, but also had to trade Matthew Kachuk. Like, I don't think he's a perfect GM. But what what do you make of him being the new GM of the Leafs? I mean, he would have had bosses in Calgary, right? So the whole notion of the Maple Leaf MLSE board um or shanahan um vetoing trades and, and having to navigate that like you know it's pretty hands-on ownership in calgary too i think brian burke would have been there in the very beginning of his 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 run out there um and yeah i mean he went i didn't get to watch a lot of his uh, press availability but he seems pretty polished and pretty confident in dealing with the public part of his job which is you know not a small percentage of it um yeah like Again, that's all going to be borne out in the next 12 to 18 months, right? Like you have some fundamental changes that are coming one way or the other to this franchise. So um, I'm going to withhold judgment until those are done yeah. um, because that's where the proof's going to be in the pudding. Um, for me, especially in this era, um, if this team doesn't win, then it's just another... Frankly, it's a, this whole year would just be another failure on a pile of failures. Yeah, yeah. And at some point, I don't know what you have to start looking at. Like there's different causes through the years um, of why this team hasn't succeeded. Um, historically, looking back, it becomes easier to trace back. And I do wonder if 15 or 20 years from now, we'll be able to look back and say it was ownership. Mm. You mm. look at the failures of the 70s, like they were within a player or two, arguably, uh, 78, 79, of challenging for the cup. They beat the New York Islanders uh, to get to the semifinal. Um, it was ownership that brought back Punch and Black and broke up the core in Trady Lane and Donald. Um, you take a look, you know, in the early 90s um, when they had Doug Gilmore and that big push with Felix Potvin. It was Steve Stavro who took over and wasn't properly capitalized that the Leafs in a non-salary cap era had to start scaling back mm. as ownership. And now I wonder, um, you know, if we look back, if ownership ever changes that, you know, we ever find out that, yeah, maybe Kyle Dubas had a line in on getting Keith, Kuch uh, Keith Kuchuk. See, I'm going with the dads. No. Uh, Matt Kuchuk, um, and was overruled by Bella Rogers. I'm not saying that's happening, but maybe yeah. it is an ownership. Maybe, Maybe the curse of the Leafs really is the ownership. I have no idea. Mm. But yeah. um, no, no, I was going to ask you. When you grade them out, I think it's a much bigger than just who's the GM because I think there's a lot that happens in that boardroom that we're just yeah. pretty. No, I, I know there's one member that I'm, I don't know enough, but seems to be always uh, 
kind of pushing back. And I know that was affected the Masai Ujiri contract, who was mm-hmm. the, the president of the Raptors. But the Toronto Star, the Toronto Star wrote about that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very interesting reporting there. Um, I but I you kind of alluded to the piece that I wanted to talk to you about of, of how the Leafs have dismantled their core, and you alluded to their ownership um, over the years, but what would you do with the core for? Do you think it's the right move to blow it up? I find I'm very split on this personally, but w- what do you think um, Brad Trilliving should do and, and what's the best uh, course of action? I think we should ask Jim Trilliving. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, um, I don't know. It's, I mean, they have lots of success in the regular season, right? Um, that's hard to do especially over a sustained period, which they've done. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know what the proper answer is. I know that um, there's certain challenges in certain ages uh, and certain production levels of certain members of the core four, which are going to be intractable and create problems for everybody else. Um, but, you know, do you get rid of one or more just for the sake of getting rid of one or more? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I can see what happens when you hold on to them too long, which is what is happening, mm-hmm. ironically, where Kyle Dubas just went, um, where they've aged out and their window is closed. Uh, but that isn't the case here in Toronto. There's still lots of runway here. How likely do you think they could do what maybe Washington and St. Louis did in terms of just holding on forever and ever and ever, every playoff loss, and then finally breaking through, and maybe next year, the next, like, how confident do you think this team could actually win a cup in the next couple of years? Confident Leafs Cup? Um, like maybe maybe just your brain like, rational, maybe being rational, how... Neither of us on this call, maybe even if you added our ages together, would have enough to get back all the way to 1967. Like we are, this franchise is trending dangerously close to like Boston Red Sox territory, yeah. right? Like, and in in a league that, you know, up until 2004, 2005, they had basically an unlimited advantage where they could have spent their way to whatever. They could have been the New York Yankees in a pre-salary cap world. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the credits for Kyle Dubas is that, you know, uh, during his tenure, they did leverage their financial advantage um, to an analytics department, to growing out other ways, to to making everything they possibly could first class. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, in the public realm, that's not where he's going to be judged as readily. But I think it did make a big difference for the Leafs and their per, their perception through the league. Um, Leafs confident cup. You're never going to get me saying that. No, that, that's that's fair enough as a. As a sense fan, I'm just hoping there's a sale. So that's a bit different, but I'm not confident in anything right now in the NHL. So I definitely uh, understand that. I want to quickly, before I let you go, just ask you a little bit about the Stanley Cup. Obviously, it starts, the final starts on uh, this weekend on Saturday. Do you have a favorite? What do you make of the matchup versus uh, Vegas versus uh, the Florida Panthers? I think it'll be fun. I think Vegas, you know, they roll a lot of lines. Uh, they roll through their pairs. I think Florida is a lot of fun because of, you know, what we've seen and how they've gotten through. Um, I think it'd be, it'd be neat to see, you know, Paul Maurice who walked away from the game, uh, you know, not that long ago um, because he, you know, essentially kind of felt burnt out. Uh, I, you know, it's been 
interesting, fun, I don't know if the right word, to follow along as he sort of rediscovered that, this team that, that just barely scraped into the playoffs by a single point. Um, and, you know, he's clearly been having fun and enjoying this. And, you know, he's one of the winningest coaches regular season uh, in NHL history who's never won a cup. And this would be his opportunity. So in terms of narratives, even though it's Florida, Vegas, I think there's plenty for Canadian fans to follow if they if they wanted to stay inside now that it's nice out. Yeah, yeah. I I, I'm, I quickly want to know how you feel about just those two teams and those two markets playing each other. Obviously, they're non-traditional hockey markets. Is that good for hockey in your mind in the NHL? I've come to think that what happens at the NHL level, at the pro level, really doesn't have an impact on the grassroots game. Mm. Like I just I don't think that they're tethered as much as we think they are. I don't think that they really have a connection, wins or losses. Um, you know, you know, Mike Russo has been doing some really good reporting, as he always does with the Athletic, about how this has sort of sparked something in Florida that had been absent since that Stanley Cup run in '93, '93, '96, '96. '96. Is that sustainable? I mean. You know, the, the franchise frittered it away uh, over 20 years of failure. But, you know, if this is a signal that, you know, the team's going to be stable and can it build anything in Florida, I don't know. Yeah. You know, like, I think it, I think it really does depend more on what the teams do that we don't necessarily see. Okay. So, like, Dallas, um, again, when it moved, um, they, the Stars built a bunch of rinks actually okay. build the hockey community down there um i think that's the kind of work that when we say good for hockey bad for hockey that's the stuff that has to happen you have to build facilities um in toronto there hasn't been a public facility built since 1967 the centennial fund wow. like there are older ranks that are falling apart all across the city they're like literally being condemned because they're physically structurally unsafe so i think even in toronto like the Leafs can't get a free pass either that you got to build facilities. You have to build community programs. Um, you have to engage um, with, you know, the people who live in your area. Good for hockey, bad for hockey, based on what you do on the ice. I don't think that has any bearing. I think it's fun for TV ratings and might get you a temporary boost. But all of the work, good, you know, long-term, good, bad, or otherwise, has to happen mm. with ownership actually investing and making a connection in their communities. Well, Sean, thank you so much for, for taking the time and doing this. I really enjoyed this conversation and I just want to give you the floor. What are you working on at The Athletic? Anything people should uh, stay tuned for? Anything you want to plug? Nothing to plug right now. Uh, you know, when we're done here, I'll probably go back to looking at an empty blank page and the cursor blinking and mocking me um, and then start the whole process over again. Yeah. Well, thank you so much sean um i'm sure uh, it won't be blank for too long and uh i'm excited to read more of your stuff and uh thanks so much for taking the time and doing this thanks so much for having me